This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. In today's episode, Nick Hutt interviews Susan Denser, author of Healthcare Without Walls, a roadmap for reinventing U.S. healthcare, about her vision of a technology-enabled healthcare system. Later, we'll have five key elements to an effective population health strategy. But first, here are Rich and Chad with a special edition of Beyond the News. This is Rich Daly, senior writer and editor for HFMA. And this is Chad Mulvaney, policy director with HFMA. Rich, it's good to be back with you. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick peek at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Joining us today, of course, is Joe Pfeiffer, president and CEO of HFMA. He's coming in to uh, discuss some recent news developments regarding a high-profile federal transparency initiative. Welcome to the podcast, Joe. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. We, uh, we did want to talk to you about uh, HMA's recently submitted letter to the Office of the National Coordinator for Health Information Technology, that's also called ONC. Uh, in the letters, ONC was seeking input on possible price transparency initiatives. One of the highest profile uh, components is the possibility that the federal government may publicly post negotiated commercial health plan rates. There's a major challenge within the proposed ONC definitions. Can you uh, both briefly explain that problem and what's its significance? Let me just start by saying uh, HFMA regularly uh, replies to these uh, RFIs or, uh, or writes comment letters of some type to HHS. We appreciate the ability to be able to represent our members uh, and our points of view. So as you said, we have done so in this case. You know, in some respects, I'm not surprised that this was in here. I've been hearing rumors for a while about the current administration um, moving down the path of transparency of payment rates. But what was surprising was that this particular take was in the proposed rule on interoperability. In fact, many industry insiders didn't even really realize that for a short while because they were so focused on the interoperability standards. So to have ONC have this proposed payment transparency within these proposed rules um, was a little bit odd. Now, the details, the answer to your question gets a little bit wonky, and Chad is way better versed in those issues than I am. Uh, So I'm going to throw it Chad's way and talk a little bit about some of the definitions that are in here that could be problematic. And thank you, Joe. And certainly what was Interesting about this, as Joe mentioned, is that we've been hearing about some coming out of the administration on price transparency, but we didn't expect it necessarily in the RFI in this proposed rule. And what the ONC has attempted to do is, as part of the RFI, it's laid out a definition for electronic health information. And as it defines electronic health information, it specifies around the individual. 
one of the subparts of the definition is, is that it identifies the individual or with respect to which there's a reasonable basis to believe the in- information could be used to identify the individual. So when you get back to the initial question of, you know, one of the things that the RFI asks about is whether or not the administration should sort of include posting of negotiated rates kind of within this framework. To me, it's very hard to do that conceptually when you're talking about information that's specific to an individual, because my negotiated rate for my health plan is specific to me. If you're on a different health plan, that rate is specific to you. And under this definitional framework, it would be hard to create a public website or to set it off the side of hospital compare and make hospitals and health plans post all their various negotiated contracts because the information is not specific to one individual. Well, uh, given that ONC has predicated its transparency efforts uh, to rates that apply to individuals, as you say, is there a way forward on this issue? Well, I'll jump in on that one. Clearly, yes. Now, I'll start with suggesting that like any you know, good buzzword that gets bantered around our society and, and certainly within healthcare, you know, it starts to take on different meanings. Price transparency has, over these last couple of years has quickly gotten to that status. And what I mean by that is price transparency is if you were to ask different people in the industry what they mean by that, you'll get all kinds of different definitions. And at the highest level, whether payment rates are part of price transparency or what we have talked about in terms of price transparency are two very different things. So let me move into what we've been talking about. And actually, it started over 10 years ago with some of our long-term members will remember our old patient-friendly billing series. Within that series, we had a consumerism report, we had a pricing and healthcare report, uh, and we introduced this topic of price transparency way back when. More recently, we have patient financial communications best practices and a, a more recent price transparency report where we created an alliance with a number of other organizations that included consumer groups to develop what we think are the appropriate price transparency guidelines. And what they really focus on, and and this is what we hear from, we heard this from the consumer groups, we hear this from individual patients, we see this in social media posts and all kinds of different places. Most individuals in this country, what they're interested in is what do they owe out of pocket? And as people know, that takes into consideration all kinds of different things. If you think about it, uh, and and our guidance says this, it says we should provide clear and understandable out-of-pocket estimates for scheduled events. Um, and, And our guidance gives different scenarios for how that could be. We also talk about, you know, larger scale, just overall patient responsibility. And, you know, in that, using more current terminology, and everybody's talking about surprise bills now, but if you think about having the right conversations with patients in the right setting, that would clearly reduce the number of surprise bills that are received. And so you ask the question, does it clear the way uh, forward? We think that it does. And we think that the guidance that we've provided our members all along has been spot on. You know, back to payment level transparency, I understand the desire and the role of payment level transparency. You know, people make the argument that it creates the market influences that some folks think are uh, are important in, in our society. However, what we really don't have a totally free market industry. 
you know, half or some significant level of revenues for all provider types come from Medicare and Medicaid. And that complicates things. How do you have an organization that has a 5% Medicaid mix compare pricing to an organization with a 30 or 40% Medicaid mix and so forth? So all those complicating factors come into play in terms of creating this payment level transparency. All that being said, our guidance that we've provided for years about clear and understandable communication with patients stands and we believe is the way forward. Well, thanks a lot for those insights, both of you. And Joe, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Joe. Good chatting with you as always. My pleasure, guys. Keep up the good work. And keep up with the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice by checking out our news site at hfma.org forward slash news. The healthcare transformation is gaining velocity. From new startups and mergers to enormous cross-industry partnerships, change is coming. We invite you to be bold, to lead the change. Join us for the HFMA Annual Conference in Orlando this June. Get the tools you need to take action. Learn more at annual.hfma.org. This is Nick Hutt, Managing Editor with HFMA. At HFMA's 2019 Annual Conference, June 23rd through June 26th in Orlando, one of the keynote sessions will feature Susan Denser, a visiting fellow at the Robert J. Margolis Center for Health Policy at Duke University. She'll be presenting a session based on her book, Healthcare Without Walls, A Roadmap for Reinventing U.S. Healthcare. In the book, she explores the changes that are needed to advance a technology-enabled healthcare system. I recently had an opportunity to speak with Susan about the major themes of the book and of her upcoming session at the conference. We began by discussing her perspective on the concept of virtual care. There are lots of lots of examples where by having healthcare move to embrace more of the virtual world, it could be made much more accessible to people. It could be much more convenient for people. It could probably result in better care for many individuals. And in fact, some studies more or less show that. And finally, uh, we think, or I certainly think, there's opportunity, no guarantee, but there's an opportunity to reduce the cost in the process. But it's going to take a monumental set of moves in healthcare and some real changes in many, many aspects of the sector for that to happen. And then there's the notion that virtual care can mitigate social determinants that affect health and well-being. We've known for decades that the primary determinants of one's health status in life actually lie well outside the healthcare system. The whole social determinants of health literature shows what really is ultimately going to drive your health status more than anything else. Your, basically, your income level and your education level, which is correlated in turn with where you grow up, what kind of a living standard do you have? And those kinds of things have so much more influence on your health status of life. They intersect, obviously, with many other things, your genetics, your behaviors, but even things like your income level and your education are highly correlated with your behavior, your health behaviors. So healthcare does have the responsibility, I believe, to embrace the social determinants of health and incorporate that into understanding of how to help people be as healthy as possible. Because in the end, what we have in the U.S., again, mainly is a sick care system. 
and it's a really effective and very expensive one. And we really need to evolve into more of a health promotion and health-inducing system because the health status of so many people in the country is deteriorating. And that's not healthcare's fault, but if healthcare doesn't own part of that responsibility, we're we're kind of doomed. Virtual care also can serve as a workaround for access-related issues that have adverse effects on population health management. So there was a big national clinical trial done on an intervention that involved having people with Parkinson's disease uh, have access to consultations with neurologists on a virtual basis, essentially by Skype. This was a, a study funded by the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute for CORE. And it studied in a number of sites, programs that did this, where a neurologist was having virtual visits with people at home with Parkinson's versus standard of care. Now, what is standard of care in America? Well, interestingly, of all the people with a Parkinson's diagnosis who are on Medicare, only about 60% of them actually ever have a single visit with a neurologist. 40% of them never see a neurologist, which is really striking. And what is even more striking is that when you peel back the layers and you say, why? Well, sometimes people don't live near a neurologist. Uh, on average, if people go to see a neurologist for a half hour, that requires a four-hour effort on their part. You think about most people with Parkinson's, they're probably not driving anymore, which means someone else is taking them to that appointment, which means it's not four hours. It means it's at least two people, so a total of eight hours of expenditure for a half-hour appointment. It probably means somebody, maybe a daughter, is taking a day off work or whatever to accompany the person to the visit. And that's if they get one with a neurologist, right? And as I say, 40% of those on Medicare with that diagnosis do not. The University of Virginia at Charlottesville has been offering telehealth across dozens of specialties for quite some time, and they estimated a couple of years ago that they had already saved patients almost 18 million miles of driving in a 10-year period. You know, and that driving, that didn't buy anybody one unit of health, right? Realizing the concept of healthcare without walls may require reimagining the idea of a hospital. You know, we had the the famous Hill-Burton program after World War II that resulted in the building of thousands of hospitals across the United States. I've argued that we need a 21st century Hilbert, not one that builds hospitals, but one that refashions hospitals in many areas mm -hmm. into health hubs particularly if you take you know, hospitals that are struggling now, revenue-wise across the country, we know that there are hundreds of them, a lot of them in rural areas. It's not because nobody needs health care in those areas. It's because that hospital model doesn't work anymore if it's a model that's predicated on fee-for-service and filling up the beds. I mean, there are many critical access hospitals in the country and other rural hospitals that have the 25-bed units in which the average census is two or three. So clearly, you know, people aren't needing the beds anymore. They're, they're needing health and health care. But these institutions, 
they don't have any incentive to change under our current system. Critical access hospitals are paid on a cost-plus basis. They're providing employment in the community. They're, they're doing all kinds of good things. There's a lot of question about whether, because their volumes are so low, what, what the level of care they're providing actually is. So if we have those questions and we have those doubts and we still have healthcare needs in the community, why aren't we thinking about a major investment program where we retool these places? Specifically, Susan says, acute care hospitals could be transformed into health hubs. Why aren't we thinking about, well, so this critical access hospital in this community that has an average sentence of two, why don't we turn that into a health hub? It Maybe it has a couple of observation beds so that if people need to come in and be uh, evaluated, they could be. There could be full telehealth capability that connects that health hub into a major academic medical center for consultations if needed. There could be a transportation system device to get people to a, a larger hospital if, in fact, they need to get there. There could be the staff of the hospital could be retrained in, to provide a community paramedicine, you know, these uh, this notion of turning uh, EMS systems into, pro- instead of emergency responders, more proactive uh, entities that go out into the community and stop off and see whether Mrs. Jones is uh, taking her medication or whether she needs a refill of the medication, how to get it to her since she doesn't have transportation, et cetera, et cetera. Being, being a proactive force in the community. Or what about having community health workers who get in their cars every day and go out and call on people and make sure that they have their health needs being met. You know, it kind of defies the imagination that we're not thinking of sort of very basic things that could be done to really improve and support health communities rather than spending the money the way we're spending it, which is clearly not delivering better units of health. Susan Dunter will offer much more insight in her keynote session at HFMA's 2019 annual conference. For more information, visit annual.hfma.org. If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. In the new era of value-based payment contracts, health systems will require a business and clinical model designed to help them assume increased risk. If value-based payment contracts are to be successful, they must lay the groundwork for a comprehensive population health management strategy, which should include five key elements. And that's the topic of today's Fast Five. Enhanced Data Analytics and Revenue Capture Platforms Investment in system-wide population health management requires the creation of an infrastructure that allows for data exchange across multiple systems. A high-performing clinical network. The business model should include defensible methodologies for selecting participants who share the health system's strategic objectives and for culling low performers. A focus on patients presenting high or emerging risk. An effective disease management program has two pillars. 
The first is a strong focus on implementing evidence-based treatment protocols for patients with chronic conditions and identifying and closing gaps in the care continuum. The second pillar is patient self-management, which can take various forms, including websites and personal coaching. Leadership, Physician, and Patient Buy-In Senior executives should lead the charge for the cultural and behavioral change required to move from fee-for-service to a population health mindset. Continuous performance improvement aimed at generating value. For the long term, a value-focused organization should have a multi-year payer strategy built from appropriate data aligned with various organizational interests and broadly understood by the entire organization. The information for today's Fast Five comes from Assembling the Essentials for Successful Population Health Management by Richard Weil and Kevin Sears, which ran in the May issue of HFM Magazine. To read it and other articles about healthcare finance topics, visit hfma.org. A quick note before we conclude. This is our last episode for the month of May, which means that by the time the next one comes out, HFMA will have a new chair. You'll be hearing plenty about Mike Allen in future episodes, but before we officially welcome him, we need to say thanks to Kevin Brennan, who has served as chair for the past year. To do that, I've invited Mary Mirabelli, HFMA's Senior Vice President of Content Strategy and Delivery, a former chair herself, to make a few remarks. Thanks, Erica. First, a huge thank you to Kevin Brennan. He has spent the past year helping us all to imagine tomorrow, where we can imagine healthy communities and a sustainable healthcare system. Kevin has visited so many of our chapters and regions this past year, spreading the word and being a fabulous, fabulous servant leader to HFMA. Our heartfelt thanks to Kevin for his many years of dedication to HFMA. For me, Kevin is part of the secret sauce that really makes HFMA so special. And as Kevin has asked us to imagine tomorrow, he passes the baton off to Mike Allen, who will challenge us to not only imagine tomorrow, Mike will dare us to move to tomorrow. We are equally excited to have Mike serve as our 2019-2020 National Chair. As Mike's year unfolds, he will be daring each of us to get out of our comfort zones and move, to challenge ourselves, to get uncomfortable, and try something new for the very first time. Welcome, Mike. We look forward to your leadership and guidance. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Additional reporting this week is by Nick Hutt. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler and Michael Shorbat. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Podbean or wherever you listen or email us at podcast at hfma.org. 